Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today, once again, Dr. David Berman, who frequent listeners will remember, has been on the show a couple times at least, doing some really interesting stuff. We talked about the uh, speed at which fluid flows through different catheters. We talked about some OB stuff at another time. And I, I believe Dr. Berman actually interviewed me, and I remember it was for, Dave, was it for the 100th uh, anniversary episode or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I think it was a milestone episode. I think it was 100th. Yeah, it was fun, whatever it was. Uh, renowned for his uh, intelligence and his dad jokes, which I'm sure will come up at some point during this episode. Uh, I've got him back on the show, and I'm thrilled to have him. And I'll say that it's going to be a really interesting episode. Dr. Berman, in addition to doing OB anesthesia and being a part of the residency leadership team here at Hopkins, also is doing a master's in medical education. And uh, as part of that, he's really spent a lot of time thinking about evidence-based teaching and specifically evidence-based teaching in anesthesiology, of course, since that's his specialty. And so uh, we decided to have him on the show and to talk about what the evidence tells us about how to do the best possible perioperative teaching that we can do. And so I think this is going to be really useful for anyone out there who's teaching residents, medical students, uh, even other faculty in private practice and wants to know how can I do this in a way that the evidence suggests is really efficacious. And so uh, let's jump right in. Dave, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So tell me, why do we care? I mean, I just said a little bit about why people might care, but in your own words, why do you think this is important? Why did we decide to do a podcast specifically on this topic? Uh, I think whatever role you inhabit in the medical ecosystem, chances are to some degree or another, it involves education. Whether you're providing direct patient care um, in that context, you're finding yourself often educating patients and their families about what we do and how it impacts their lives. When we discuss plans with our surgical colleagues, with our nursing colleagues, we certainly do the same. So obviously in an academic setting, uh, faculty and learners spend their time involved in a nice educational dialogue, but as a student, as a teacher, as a patient, a family member, and a colleague, we certainly all have the responsibility to be as educated as we can. Um, and with that, the opportunity um, present to make the most out of our interactions with others. So this podcast isn't really about the act of teaching itself. There are certainly lots of resources available to improve direct instructional skills. My vision for this podcast 
is to talk about theoretical frameworks and specific approaches to make educational experiences as tailored and efficient as possible. Our age of do more with less is especially important in educational activities. We want to make sure that they're as productive as they can be with the limited resources available. My job isn't to give you everything. My job is to suggest a couple of tools that you can put in your toolbox to make you an even better craftsman. Yeah, absolutely. I think this will be really useful. So what do you, what's the span of what you want to talk about today? Give me an idea of kind of the overview. What do we want to cover? So I, a lot of ink has been spilled on being a good teacher in the classroom, but there's been much less discussed about being a strong perioperative educator. And we all know that the OR or ICU environment are unique ones. There are lots of distractions, tons of production pressure. And in the OR especially, there's a unique uh, patient care model that's really unlike anything else in clinical medicine. It's really one doctor or one provider um, taking care of one patient at a time. And that's a really uh, a different model than we have elsewhere in medicine. Um, and so it's important to focus educational uh, teaching strategies to that model. A publication in 1989 by a gentleman named uh, Chickering talked about an important framework for best practices in undergraduate education. And I think it's important that we mention them because they form the foundation of adult learning theory. So I'll go over them briefly. They say, he says, good practice encourages student-faculty contact. Cooperation among students encourages active learning, gives prompt feedback, emphasizes time, emphasizes time on task, practices good communications of high expectations. We're uh, expressing that we're expecting high things from our students and respecting diverse talents and ways of learning. And we also know that when we look at adult learning theory, initially um, described by Malcolm Knowles in 1980, um, we know that there are differences between children and adults. Adult learners take ownership of their learning. They feel a strong intrinsic desire to master a skill set, and they maintain their own motivation. As a result, the role of the educator for adults should be different than for children. We should be focusing on directing the learner to embrace independent learning, teach practically relevant skills, and treat the learner really as an adult colleague. I consider and it David, a personal I, You know, I, I totally, I just, sorry to interrupt. I just, you know, I completely agree. I think that's such an important thing to emphasize. And so I just want to re-emphasize, you know, that this, not only are these things important, but, but they're so much more important because I think it's almost as if residency education was designed in a way to, to do the opposite right? We, we take adult learners, traditionally anyway, and we don't give them any ownership over their own learning. We don't allow them to be self-motivated. We don't do any of the things that are what adult learners need. And so I think this message of, of the fact that it's different, that we can't just treat adult learners the way we treat child learners is a hugely important one. And I think this is obviously a little off topic from the podcast, but I think to at least some degree, um, burnout in healthcare professions may be due to that as well. You take people who by nature are outside of the box and creative thinkers, and all of a sudden you put them into these pigeonhole, um, epic click box checker roles. Um, and it's no surprise that people are frustrated with their roles. If you take people who, in order to get where they were supposed to be, were creative out of the box thinkers and then force them into molds. Absolutely. All right. Sorry. Um, let me get, let you get on with your thought there. Oh, no problem. Um, I, so I, I think of it as my own personal charge as an educator. When I'm teaching, 
to deliver high-quality educational experiences targeted for adult learners. It's a challenge, but with effort and attention, it can be done. When we think about adult learners and specifically about resident education, there's a model called the Dreyfus and Dreyfus model um, that describes the progression from novice to expert. And it starts off with novice, essentially a medical student, to an advanced beginner, someone who can do a little bit on their own, to someone who's competent, who can be trusted with basic stuff, to someone who's proficient, say maybe a senior resident, um, to an expert learner, that's maybe a junior attending, all the way to a master learner. That's someone who's a senior attending, someone who's a person who you know, is, uh, as one of our surgical colleagues at Hopkins says, the attending ear attending the person who the attending calls for help. And this progression certainly happens over the course of one's career and is not unlike the ACGME milestone projects. Um, we say that on the scale of one to five, four is a graduation target. If you look at the milestones in the ACGME, some of them a five, you'd have to be a senior attending to hit. The literature is really overrun with schema and approach tactics for educational experiences. But I think the best thing that works in my head um, is this same framework that we use for planning cases in the OR, where we talk about pre-op, intra-op, and post-op. We spend a lot of time planning perioperative optimization, um, intra-op management, and post-operative excellence. Um, that's also a helpful way to approach planning a learning experience. So when I'm planning something in my head, I frame the educational experience as pre-learning, intra-learning, and post-learning. This approach is as helpful for the learner as it is for the teacher because it lets you know where they are as well as where you are. Yeah, I love that. So what do you think of or include in the pre-learning process? When I'm planning an educational experience, I think it's really important to do an assessment of the learner's needs. One fundamental tenet of adult learning theory is to meet the learner where they're at and teach them something concrete. If we don't know where our learners are in their trajectory, there's absolutely no way that we'll be able to target learning. So one simple way is just to ask. Adult learners are often aware of their deficiencies or skills they're working on and are really eager to disclose that. Whether it's a technique, a comorbidity, a case, there's something to learn from every patient encounter. I asked a resident last week on OB call, what do you want to do differently? And this resident said to me, I've never done a lateral epidural and I've never done continuous loss of resistance. And I said, great, we're gonna switch off every other and the whole night, we're going to do, when we do our epidurals, they're either going to be lateral or continuous. And then by the end of the night, we were doing lateral continuous. I also got no sleep. Um, <laughs> another way to assess is by direct visual observation. It's certainly easier in the ICU because you have a little more continuity with your learners um, in the sense that you have a team and an attending who's taking care of, uh, of the, the team for a week or two or a month at a time. Um, but it's possible in the OR, especially on rotations with a group of core faculty, like if you're on your regional rotation and you work with the same attending two or three days in a row, um, you can definitely see a trajectory of your learner's experience. But whatever the method, it's important to assess the learner where they're at, both for planning purposes, and it also allows the learner to feel like the educator cares about their experiences. And both of these are key to a positive longitudinal learning relationship. We also yeah. want to make sure that when we're developing a, a learning relationship with a, a learner, it shouldn't be a one-shot deal. Uh, it should be a longitudinal relationship, especially um, when we're talking about a resident and faculty. 
Yeah, no, I think that's really important. You know, I remember from when I was doing my master's in education quite a while ago, um, before medical school, that being taught that there's this idea of adult learners having these pegs already in their mind, which is analogous, of course, to what they already know, where they're at. And that the way adult learners learn best is rather than just throwing information at them, that we figure out what those pegs are and then hang new information on those already existing pegs so it will stay. If you just give a bunch of information not knowing where they're already at, as you said, then it won't stick. There isn't, you're not hanging it on the prior knowledge the way you need to for adult learners. So that's what I always think of in my head when, when uh, we talk about that. But I like yeah, the way people, you People talk a lot about how um, the educational framework is a scaffold. In that if you don't know what the frame looks like, there's no way you're going to be able to help build higher levels. Yep, totally. All right, so that's pre-learning. Anything else you want to include in there before we go to intra-learning? Yeah, I think it's really helpful. Uh, It's not really strictly a teaching strategy, but it's really helpful to provide learners with pre-reading or media resources to review before you're planning on actually teaching them. And while this can be something as simple as just sending out a paper, Um, In these days, a lot of our learners are learning via uh, videos, digital simulations, or other online content um, that can best prime the learner for an experience to come. And so if you send your learner, if you say, um, next week, we're going to learn about X, Y, and Z technique, um, I'm going to send you a YouTube video of how it's done, assuming that the content is high quality and vetted. um, It's helpful. It it allows um, the learner to see that the educator is invested in the educational experience. And like we said, it provides a scaffold on which to base your intraoperative teaching. Uh, The one caveat I'll say with this is less is more. If you just tell the learner, read three chapters in Miller, it's not going to help them learn much. Maybe a short review article would be better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the flip classroom model people I'm sure have heard about, it's gotten a lot of, um, press. There's articles about it. I think depending on how it's done, it can be very useful. But just the idea, as you say, of giving some moderate, reasonable amount of high yield pre-work can be very useful. All right. What about the intra-learning environment? So before we get to specific things, there's an amazing ASA refresher about intraoperative teaching strategies uh, that's useful for anesthesiologists. And they mention a few different ones. I'll use that as the basis we're talking about intraoperative learning, but I'll certainly add a few additional extra um, models. Um, the citation will be in the show notes. So some of the techniques that I mentioned will take some time to master, but others are very, very easy to do with little or no additional effort. So let's start off with one of the easier things to do. Um, it's called the one-minute preceptor model. This is one of those models that's deceptively simple, but educationally profound. It's best applied to direct clinical problems encountered on a daily basis rather than teaching from scratch. It's had numerous modifications. It's been around for about 30 years, but the core principles remain the same. So principle number one is get a commitment. Push the learner slightly beyond their comfort zone, and it allows you to assess their level of understanding and push their own boundaries. So if the resident calls you for a common intraoperative problem, say the patient's hypoxic or hypotensive, Instead of swooping in to fix the problem, ask the question, what do you think is going on? Adult learners are often afraid of being wrong. If done in a non-judgmental and kind way, getting the resident to commit to an answer can be a helpful thing. 
And stage two is probe for supporting evidence. Ask the resident, what led you here? What supporting factors led you to this conclusion? You're hearing them explain their reasoning, and that is helpful for you and for them. Then next up, reinforce what was done well. Rather than simply saying, I think your tube is mainstemmed, you can say, I really like how you approach this systematic review of hypoxemia. Um, you did a great job going to manual and squeezing the bag, but I would think about listening for bilateral breath sounds or confirming your tube placement another way. Next up, teach a general principle. Based on the learner's strengths and needs, teach about a general principle about the clinical problem. This can obviously take lots of different forms, a chalk talk, a YouTube video, um, a direct clinical demonstration of a principle. Uh, but the important point is that it's short and efficient. This shouldn't be a 45-minute talk. And then the last part is feedback. It's important that feedback be explicit. So often we give feedback without the learners even realizing. Sometimes we say, um, I think you maybe could have approached the central line a little bit more laterally, and that would have made your life easier. But unless you say, I'm going to give you feedback now, it's not always taken as such. So that's often the best way to start the process. Absolutely. And I've heard that described as signposting the feedback. There was a great mini experiment that was done when I was a resident where we were uh, evidently getting feedback. The department's getting feedback that the medical students loved the clerkship, but they said they weren't getting any feedback. And so the head of the clerkship said to all of us, the residents, Next, from now on, when you, every day when you have a medical student, say to them, I'm going to give you some feedback now and then do the same thing you're doing anyway, which is giving them that feedback. And every day they would send a page to all of us saying, okay, remember, use the word feedback when you talk to your medical student. So we all started doing it. We were doing the exact same thing we always did, except instead of just giving them feedback, we were saying, hey, here's some feedback. And the scores completely reversed. Everybody said they were getting feedback. We were doing the exact same thing. We just were now labeling it as feedback. So signposting that feedback can be an important step. Signposting other things like in marriage can also help. I am going to do the dishes now. It's very helpful. Love it. Absolutely. And the other thing I love about the I one really hope preceptor my wife model. Is not listening, by the way. Yeah, well, uh, well, hopefully she's not spending a lot of time listening to uh, ACRAC. Uh, that, yeah. I'm sure she's got better things to do with her time. Yeah. Um, I will say that uh, the other thing I love about the one-minute preceptor model, and I use it all the time, is that as you described, you're not – doing what mo I think a big mistake, and we'll talk about this more when we get to feedback, but a big mistake I think a lot of us make when giving feedback is we just say, okay, here's what you need to do differently. But we don't take the time to figure out what the learner was thinking that led them to do the thing that we're talking about. And it's built into the one-minute preceptor because you actually probe for that supporting evidence rather than just say, oh, that's what you think is going on. No, it's not that, it's this. We say, oh, you think it's that. Tell me why. What's going on in your mind that's led you to that. And that allows for a whole another rich source of learning and feedback. So I love that about it. And speaking of that, there's a, another approach um, that I think is similarly related that's also very helpful. So in the one minute preceptor model, it's great because you have a minute or two to talk to the resident about what they think is going on. But what if you're in a situation where things are, are complicated quickly? Um, what if you need to address a clinical problem quickly? Um, and what if you need to do it with a junior resident, when the resident doesn't really know exactly what to do, especially uh, at this point in the early in the, the academic year. Um, this technique is called the thinking aloud approach. And it's really helpful for talking about the why rather than the what. 
And it's important also to think about that when we ask why, that's also the question that's asked on the oral boards. We don't care about the what as much as we care about the why. So when you need to step in and clinically um, address a problem, rather than simply fix it, if you can, think aloud through your thought process. This can be done during the encounter or sometimes afterwards, rather than simply say, I gave intralipid because I thought the patient had bupivacaine toxicity. You can say, based on profound cognitive and hemodynamic changes after a recent dose of bupivacaine, I'm concerned that this patient developed local anesthetic systemic toxicity. I'm temporizing with low-dose epinephrine um, and with uh, fluids and with whatever you would need to do, but definitive treatment includes lipid emulsion therapy. Let's give it and see what happens. This is helpful for cognitive approach type things. It doesn't quite do well for manual and technical skills, but for this, there are other models that we can talk about. Great. So tell me about that. What do you do um, if you need to kind of demonstrate something? So there's a model called the activated demonstration model, which focuses on technical skills development, especially in addressing shortcomings in performance. It's basically a direct observation of a master clinician, but instead of just watching the attending do the procedure, um, it's done in a systematic way. There are a few steps. First thing is setting expectations. That faculty should say, this is an educational activity not an attending stealing a procedure from you, or not just an attending stealing a procedure from you. <laughs> the faculty needs to communicate with the learner exactly what to focus on. So rather than saying, watch my hands, the attending can say, watch my left hand as I enter the artery with my angiopath. Activate the learner. Rather than simply doing the procedure, ask the learner what they've noticed. This will serve to turn the learner into an active participant rather than a passive vessel. And certainly, if you can, repeat. The learner should ideally be offered a chance to re repeat the procedure under the supervision of ideally the same person to reemphasize the teaching point. And like everything else, we should end with feedback. This should conclude all experiences. This might be helpful in a rotation like regional anesthesia, where um, the resident's not quite sure how to get their needle in the plane um, and has never looked at the anatomy on a live patient more than on a, on a video. Um, and so the attending can glove up with the resident and say, this is what I'm doing. What do you see right now? Focus on my needle tip. What do you see right now? And then the next block, the resident can do with the attending. Yep. Love it. So how do you recommend that people make things seem relevant to the learner? Because as we said, it's so important for adult learners to, to believe that what they're learning is important for their day-to-day -day practice. It's important for what they're going to actually face. It has to feel relevant to them. So how do we do that? I think the important thing to do um, is, is that we should teach stuff that's relevant to the case at hand. Um, and so there's a, a model called the Teach General Principle Model. Um, and this is probably something we do without a whole lot of training in it. But it's important to think about the systematic approach to how we're doing it. Um, we want to teach facts and cognitive knowledge, but we want to make sure that they're relevant. And if the learner does see things that are relevant, they're far more likely to be engaged and derive some benefit. So obviously, there are certain teaching tasks that are more important than others. If you're doing a case where the resident has never done a laparoscopic case before, and they're about to insufflate the abdomen, you should probably teach about physiologic responses to laparoscopy. That's a time-sensitive task. 
if you have a patient with, say, liver dysfunction, and the patient's going to have a toe amputation under an ankle block, it's great to discuss the anesthetic implications of liver disease, but that doesn't have to happen before the block is in. That's a non-time sensitive task. So prioritizing in your head what you want to cover to make it the most relevant for the learner. Obviously, we also have to get learner buy-in. It's easier said than done, but the learner has to believe that your teaching has value. That's much more helpful to do, much easier to do if it's relevant teaching. Um, you should, as best as you can, make sure that the learners have their undivided attention on learning and be as free from distractions as possible. So when I'm teaching, especially our brand new CA1s, they're so hyper vigilant that they are looking all around the room and looking at every single detail. And I verbally announce, I am taking over the case. I am managing the case. It is your job to learn. It allows the learner to offload those cognitive processes of direct patient care and dedicate their mental energy to learning. Um, in If you've ever been in the cockpit of an airplane, um, when pilots are handing controls over to each other, there's closed loop communication. Okay, my plane, your plane. I'm taking over the patient right now while you guys are learning. You also wanna keep it relevant. If you're taking care of a, a patient, a healthy patient for an appy, probably not a good idea to talk about a subcutaneous ICD. There's certainly a time and a place for that, but keeping learning relevant is helpful and also keep it limited. We've all been in the post-lunch food coma where your eyes glaze over in the middle of a head and neck free flap and your attention span of your learners will drop off after 15 minutes or less. So for time-limited educational experiences, make them count. It helps them give time to focus on patient care when you're not teaching them, but gives them some educational stuff while you are teaching them, but hopefully not too long. Awesome. Love it. So that's, those are really, really, I think, great, great points to keep in mind. Um, and I like that model a lot. So if you had to summarize before we move on to post-learning, how would you summarize these techniques we've talked about? What do they have in common? Well, the beauty of all of these techniques that we described is that they're quick, they're relatively easy to remember, they're adaptable to different levels of learner. Medical students are so focused on exposure, seeing lots of different cases. Junior residents are so focused on the textbook, and more advanced learners are focused on minute details, developing specialized techniques, the style points, as we say. Um, these learning techniques aren't mutually exclusive. And you can use different points throughout the day. So you can use an active demonstration model for starting the case and then talk more um, directly about uh, with a teach general principle model when you're doing your intraoperative uh, verbal teaching. Um, and you can use them throughout the day. It's really important to keep individual sessions brief, but they can be frequent enough to give the learner a sense of educational accomplishment while still having clinical activity throughout the day. And regardless of the teaching technique that's used, it's really important to assess the learner's baseline knowledge and meet where they're at. We give small bits of knowledge at a time and foster creativity. Learners should be pushed beyond their comfort zone just a little bit, not a lot, and allowed to fail gracefully. Awesome. I think that's so, so important. All right. So what about post-learning? What does that consist of? We started this talk off by saying that we need to meet learners where they are 
treat them like adults and have targeted learning sessions. Then we spent some time talking about how to best structure teaching and achieve the most out of minimal time period. Now we're going to talk about what to do when the experience is complete. There is this model called the one minute paper. It's been used in undergrad education since the 1990s, but it's something that's gaining increased traction in the academic medical world because it's simple and it allows the learner to reflect in a structured way. So in a lecture hall, the way this is done, um, a learner is given a sheet of paper and a minute and they're asked two questions. Number one, what was the most important thing you learned today? And number two, what question is still left unanswered? And then you share the paper with the teacher. It's obviously easier in a lecture format, a little more uh, uncomfortable if things aren't great in a one-on-one format, Um, but it's really helpful for both the educator and the learner. So for the educator, it displays what's still unanswered. It's a really good feedback for the educator to know, did I not adequately address a certain topic? Um, And for the learner, it's really helpful because the learner is going to reflect about what they learned quickly, um, immediately after the experience. There are lots of variations on the technique, but what's important is that the learner is given an opportunity to reflect and give feedback to the instructor about what was covered. Yeah. And as you said before, feedback is so, so important. Learning just, you can't really separate learning from feedback. It's such an integral part. So Let's talk about that. What do you think about in terms of good feedback techniques? So like we said, feedback is really important to learning, and it certainly provides the learner with further direction and areas of improvement, but also to highlight their strengths. Lots of studies like the one that you mentioned at UCSF have shown that despite directed feedback during teaching itself, I think you need to move more medially, the radial artery feels stronger there. Learners don't report receiving feedback unless it's direct and explicitly categorized as such. If you start off the phrase of the discussion simply by saying, okay, feedback time, that can go a long way in setting the stage for these discussions. Um, I'm sure that we all grew up with a compliment sandwich, the compliment, the the negative, and then the, the small compliment at the other end. That's no longer in vogue, mostly because today's learners have grown up with this. They've trained themselves to ignore the bread and focus on the meat. It's Mm -hmm. counterproductive because it ignores the learner's perspective and really ignores what they've done well. So a more contemporary approach is the ask, tell, ask model. Rather than unidirectionally giving a compliment sandwich, this focuses on three simple tasks. You ask the learner something like, how did today go? Or what did you think about today? You want to ask a question that's as open-ended or general as possible that will prime the learner towards introspection. They should focus on their learning experience. Then we started with ask. Then we go to tell. Tell the learner something. Tell them whether you agree or disagree with their assessment of their performance. Rather than pointing out their own deficiencies, you can add in your perspective about their performance. I found that a lot of our residents, especially our junior residents, tend to be overly self-critical. So rather than say, I think you need to work on your A-line skills. They'll say, I feel like I'm doing everything wrong. And that's a very different conversation. And then the next thing you want to do is you want to ask about the future. So we said, ask, how did it go? Tell the learner something. And then ask about the future. Ask the learner what they'll do differently next time. While we work on conveying knowledge, ideally that knowledge would be used to have a tangible impact on their daily lives. 
So if you ask their future direction, you say to them, are you going to do this again? Are you going to choose this technique again? It, it can be really helpful. And it definitely gives the learner a sense that you're invested in their success. That's key. Um, another thing to, that's important to think about is your feedback conversations are very, very dependent on how number one went, on how the asking the learner went. Obviously, feedback can be, uh, the, the conversation is very different with a resident who says, no, I think everything went great when the resident esophageally intubated and punctured the carotid during a cardiac case. Um, but if the resident said, you know, today I had an off day, those are two very different feedback conversations. Absolutely. It's ask, tell, ask is a great technique, and, and I absolutely uh, teach it and use it all the time. I, a couple things I want to point out. One is I think framing the importance of feedback to your learner is really key because, unfortunately, unlike sports where feedback is expected, in medicine, we just don't have that culture, and you have to be careful. And, and so I like to tie those two together, and I often will say right up front to my residents, I'll say, you know, just so you know, the way I, I kind of frame the day, I'll say, you know, if I were your tennis coach and all I said to you during the les- during our tennis lesson was, hey, great swing, great swing, it's really good, love your swing, great, right? You, that's all I ever said to you. You'd fire me immediately. I mean, you would think I was the worst coach. You want, you're paying me to be your tennis coach so that I can tell you how to make your swing better. And if I don't do that, then I'm a terrible coach. And, and so I think of my job as you're attending to be the same thing. If I don't tell you something today of how you can do better, how you can be a better anesthesiologist, then I have failed. So when I do come up with some stuff, and I hope I can, you know, please don't take it personally. Know that I'm, I'm desperately trying to find stuff because I want to be a good coach, a good teacher, and give you that feedback. And I think if you frame it that way or something like that, it really helps learners to feel like they're not being overly criticized or you're not, you know, judging them in some terrible way that's going to hurt their career or whatever. You're just trying to help them. And that's what it should be. So I think framing the whole thing that way can be really great. And then the other technique that I really like is called debriefing with good judgment. And it's a really nice feedback technique. And it is, I mentioned this earlier that it really focuses on looking at the way that a learner got to the decision that they made and the thought process that went into it. So you had mentioned, you know, what do you do if you say to a learner, how'd things go after they, you know, intubated the esophagus three times and they say, great, that was a great day. Everything went great, right? Well, what do you do? So one thing you can do is say, you know, interesting, I noticed that we struggled to get the tube in the trachea a little bit. Tell me what was, what was your thought process as you tried different things along the way, right? And it reveals so much. They may say, oh, I didn't realize that we were in the esophagus. I thought we were in the trachea and I wasn't sure why you kept telling me to pull it out, right? I mean, that would be a hugely important thing to know if your learner didn't even realize Right here you are thinking, well, of course, I mean, we were in the esophagus three times. I told them to take it out and put it back in, so they must have known, but maybe they didn't, right? Maybe they thought this was some weird teaching technique that you were telling them to take it out of the trachea and put it back in the trachea and take it out of the trachea and put it back in the trachea. But you would never side, know that. If you ever needed an OG tube, that sounds like the resident to go to. That's exactly right. But you would not know, right? So you have to, if you ask what what was going on in their head, you'll discover things that will allow you to do better teaching. So it's a it's a focus on that that's really key. And I suggest to to faculty, to anybody doing teaching, 
that if you're ever at a loss because it feels like, you know, the resident isn't recognizing what you want them to recognize, or you just don't get how that, why they did it. I mean, I'll have faculty come to me and say, you know, I can't, I don't understand it. I mean, this resident did this thing and I, I can't understand why they did it. And I'll say, well, what did they, you know, did you ask them what they were thinking that led to that? And they'll say, well, no, I didn't, right? I mean, they, they didn't ask. Well, you have to ask. Adults, for the most part, and there are always exceptions, but for the most part, adults usually think things through before they do them. Their thought process may be faulty, but you have to know that so you can help them figure out how to think about it better. Or occasionally, they may have a perfectly reasonable thought process that actually led them to a decision that made perfect sense based on what they were thinking. You may even discover faults in the system. So for example, a resident may say they did something and you say, what were you thinking about? And they said, well, I read the protocol on our website and that's what it said to do. And you go look and sure enough, the protocol is wrong. There's a mistake, right? Well, the resident did exactly what they were supposed to do, which was follow the ERAS protocol that is published on the department website. But that has to now be fixed. So you discover all those things when you use that technique. So I like that a lot too. And I think people are generally hesitant, um, especially as young attendings. Um, I, I finished training not too long ago, and I can remember an attending who used to tell me that I was taping my tube wrong every single time, no matter how I would do it. But it wasn't you're taping your tube wrong. It's you're going to kill someone by doing that. It's like everyone's so hesitant to give feedback when they come from a, an environment of, oh, that is often the feedback that's given to me. But I think debriefing with good judgment um, or doing ask, tell, ask, um, having a structured way of doing it in such a way that feedback is, is formative as well as summative, um, it's, it's helpful for future sake as well as a summative judgment um, can be really helpful. Absolutely. All right. So how do you put all this together, Dave? So putting all together, um, I think there are four big components to being an advanced educator. The first is get mutual buy-ins from the learner to begin the learning relationship. The second is to do an assessment of needs through questioning observation of both or both. The third is practicing high value teaching, emphasizing efficiency and quality over quantity. And the fourth is to adapt your teaching to the learner and the situation and push the learner slightly beyond their comfort zone. And lastly, provide helpful feedback, giving opportunities for future growth. Awesome. All right. So that is a great summary. And then what about if people want to improve their teaching skills? What do you recommend? So improving your teaching skills, when you're talking about getting buy-in from the resident, establish the educational context. Ask about the learner's past experiences. Ask about their goals for the specific session. Identify learning needs and beware, be aware of any idiosyncrasies um, between you and the, the, the learner in terms of your previous relationships or previous clinical experiences. Um, in terms of maintaining buy-in, you want to be interested. You want to just not just turn your back while the resident's putting the A-line in because you want to give them space. Don't turn your back. Give them space while watching them. Um, pay attention to what the resident does and their critical clinical thinking. Teach to their identified needs, maybe one to three teaching points. You want to provide really good clinical context and get a commitment. Um, wait for the right moment to teach and explain your decision-making. 
and definitely don't be defensive. Residents will sometimes ask me, why did you choose X, Y, and Z technique? And I'm tempted to say, because that's what I'm doing and I'm the attending, but that's not the answer. Um, set the stage for a, a situation where inquisition is not only accepted, but encouraged and finish strong. Provide solid feedback, ask, tell, ask, debrief with good judgment. So they remember that they did things well and remember what they can potentially improve on. Go over teaching points. You had one to three teaching points at the beginning of the day. Go over them again. Ensure that you're teaching productively and appreciate the learner's efforts and work. I think this is something I really appreciated when I was a resident or a fellow, when someone would, would, the faculty would say to me at the end of the day, thank you so much for your hard work. I know you didn't have a choice coming in, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Um, That's about it. I'm looking forward to your feedback. Yeah, you see what you did there? Nicely done. So I love it. A couple things. So you, you mentioned wait for the right moment. I think that's so key. You know, as faculty, sometimes we walk in and we just say, all right, you know, let's do it. Let's do the feedback or let's do the teaching. And we may not take the time to realize that the resident may be, you know, rushing around trying to f- finish up their, you know, getting their lines organized or they're trying to finish their charting before an in- intense part of the case or whatever it may be. Uh, you know, and that can be very stressful for them. They're going to have a hard time focusing on what we're doing. So I think asking, is this a good time for some teaching? Is this a good time for feedback is a great way to go. And then, you know, like you said, uh, don't not being defensive about what you do. I try to actually make a point of pointing out to residents the many, many, many things that I do that are just my preferences, but that are not necessarily any better than other options. And I do that because one, there's so much in medicine in general and anesthesia for sure is part of this that we don't know. We don't know the answer. We don't know if it's better to do this or that or the other thing. Um, so we all have our own preferences, but I, it drives residents crazy. And, and it drives me crazy when faculty say, you know, you absolutely should never do X when there's absolutely no reason other than they don't like X. So, you know, I'll have residents say to me like, oh, you, you want to use some nitrous? Oh, you know, so-and-so told me that we should never use nitrous ever under any circumstances. And, you know, that's ridiculous to say. I mean, clearly that's just a ridiculous, there's no, you know, randomized trial showing that nitrous in every possible circumstance is, a, is harmful to patients. So there's a lot of things like that. So to, to counteract that, I try to say to residents, look, this is what I usually do, but there are lots of other ways to do this. And I can't tell you that my way is any better than those other ways. And I want you to try all different ways. And I think it's, it's also important, like uh, our, and I tell this to our residents all the time, they're not always going to be working in the same system with the same group of attendings, even when they're in attending. Um, you could go to a different institution that doesn't have nitrous hookups in the wall. And if you've only done a craniotomy with ISO and nitrous, you're going to have to learn how to do a case with a completely different style. Where I did my residency for antihypertensive drug in neuro cases, we used clavidipine, cleviprex, like the Remy fentanyl of calcium channel blockers. At Hopkins, we don't have Cleviprex. So I used to do FIOs with Cleviprex, and I had never touched nitroprusside as a resident. I just, it was too expensive, and Cleviprex was available. And now I do my FIOs with nitroprusside. It was a learning curve, but it would have been nice if during a FIO as a resident, someone said to me, why don't we try doing this without Cleviprex yep. and use a different technique? Absolutely. Um, all right, Dave, let's turn to the portion of the show where we make random recommendations. Everyone's stuck at home these days. What are you doing that you've found fun or entertaining that you could share with our listeners? 
So I just got uh, a new iPad recently. Thank you, Johns Hopkins. Uh, and it came with a year of Apple TV. Um, I'm still not sold on whether I'm going to keep my subscription afterwards. But for the time being, the morning show is really great. I'm a couple episodes in and it, it has totally hooked me so far. Um, I've also found that I have um, an endless appetite for historical documentaries. I used to make fun of my dad for watching World War II documentaries on the History Channel all day and night. And I have realized that I have since turned into him, at mm. least in that regard. That does happen. But the morning show is fantastic. I agree. My wife and I tore through it and really enjoyed it. Um, highly, if you highly haven't recommend. watched Unorthodox, I totally recommend Unorthodox. So that was going to be my random recommendation. Wow. Absolutely. Sorry. So beat you to no, it. No, Sorry. No, I'll, I'll second it. Uh, so um, we also recently watched that. It's only four episodes plus a 20 minute kind of making of episode, which you told me about. Um, and I, and it was fantastic. Incredibly well done, incredibly well acted, very compelling story. Uh, just four hour long episodes and then the 20 minute kind of explanation of how it was made that's also worth watching. And I will say I never would have known this on my own, but Dave, what you told me is that uh, the details are incredibly well done. The Yiddish, the idioms they use within the Yiddish, which I, I wouldn't know or understand, but are you know spot on. They really put a lot of effort into it, right? Yeah, the, uh, the man, without spoiling too much, the, the gentleman who, the actor who plays the rabbi, um, one of the rabbis in... The, the series he himself is a former hasidic jew who acts as a yiddish and jewish studies consultant to lots of different organizations and whatever and the and the level of detail i grew up not far from that community both both religiously and geographically um and the level of detail in that series is just outstanding the word choices that they use in Yiddish are fascinating and betray such a level of depth of understanding of the of the, the language. It was so well done. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I want to. We have a listener random recommendation. Um, I've actually this has been on the on the back burner for a while. I've been meaning to mention it. Uh, so one of our listeners, Trey Wells, recommends a book called Extreme Ownership by uh, authors named Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing those correctly, and I apologize to those authors. But it's a book about being successful in Navy SEAL teams and how some of those lessons apply to other things like the business world or the medical world um, and is just uh, really, really evidently good. I haven't had a chance to look myself, but they say it's really, uh, but Trey says it's really worthwhile to check out. And so I will and recommend that to others as well. All right, Dave, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks again for having me. All right. I thought that was fantastic. Really good evidence-based summary of what we can do to be good teachers. Hopefully you found it useful as well. Let us know what you thought. You can go to the website, acrac.com, where you can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. Let us know. Do you think we missed something? You do things differently. We're always interested to hear what listeners think. If you have random recommendations of your own, Send them on in. You can tweet them to us. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can, of course, also join the Facebook group, the ACRAC Facebook group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. 
If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or Venmo at J Walpaw for the Venmo account. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and already become patrons. We really, really appreciate it. Big thanks to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, to our social media manager, April Liu, and our previous social media manager who's still helping out with some of the outlines for the episodes, Dr. Kimia Kashkuli. Of course, our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Dave Berman, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.